What do COLA, ABBA, and the Soviet Union have in common? On this episode of Mondo Mercato, we investigate the fascinating and poorly understood world of countertrade. From the Georgia Tech Center for International Business Education and Research at the Scheller College of Business, this is Mondo Mercado Understanding Global Markets. Mondo Mercado aims to demystify the complex world of international business through education and entertainment. Countertrade sounds complicated, and some versions of it are, but in its most basic form, it's barter. It's like you trade something that you have for something else that you want. Now, there are different varieties of countertrade, and to tell you more about countertrade, I'm here with uh, an expert speaker, uh, George Tracy. Yeah, my name's George Tracy. I'm the director with the U.S. Commercial Service here in Atlanta. So, uh, the first one that we want to talk about uh, is the most basic form, barter. So, what does a barter countertrade look like? Yeah, fundamentally, barter is just an exchange of goods or services for goods or services. So, bottom line is no money exchanges hands. So, if you have uh, computers that I want, I've got chickens that you want, I'd give you my chickens, you give me your computers, and the deal would be done. And that's probably the most common type of countertrade out there? Uh, yeah, I'd say that... Uh, Probably is. Um, that's pretty much the only counter trade that happens between individuals. Mm-hmm. Once you get into business and big governments and big transactions, uh, you start seeing other types that we're going to talk about in a second. But yeah, I'd say barter is probably most common. So that, that benefits the company, but it tends to not benefit uh, the country so much in that you're just you're trading something for something else. There's not a way that a government can can track it and, most importantly, tax it oh, right. uh, when it's going across. And it may not even necessarily create additional jobs or any other things. that. But it's definitely advantageous to the companies that are exchanging because one of the reasons that you might want to look at a, at a barter transaction is if there are repatriation of funds issues that you can't pull your money out mm-hmm. or there's runaway inflation in a particular location. And this is a way that you get something of tangible value that in the global, you know, the the local inflation isn't going to influence its global value. Yeah, and the other the other situation would be if the um, in the the country just doesn't have a, a adequate hard currency re- reserves, so they simply don't have the hard currency to purchase something. They use a product instead. Okay. All right. Um, so then the next one that we were going to talk about uh, is a buyback. What's mm-hmm. a buyback? So a buyback uh, fundamentally is a situation where um, the supplying company that's building, let's say, a factory in the country, agrees to buy back some uh, level of the output from that that factory. So a good example of that would be like a helicopter company. If a country wanted to buy a bunch of helicopters, lots of companies compete for the the helicopter business. And perhaps my helicopter company, I make the offer that, look, if you choose our helicopters, I'm going to build a facility in your country that's going to produce the landing gear for those helicopters, and I'm actually going to buy that landing gear from you and put it on my helicopters worldwide. And you'll also, of course, be able to use landing gear on the helicopters that you buy from me. And it creates jobs. It uh, 
It uh, puts money into their economy, of course, and so on. So it's sort of everybody wins. Helps with balance of accounts, all those balance kind of accounts. Things. Yeah. So. Okay. Um, can you tell me the difference? I've always struggled with what's the difference between a counter purchase and an offset. So a counter purchase is a situation where um, you agree to buy my product for hard currency, or I guess perhaps soft currency, but with money. You give me money for my product. But part of the deal is that over some period of time, I then agree to buy something from you. So let's say your country is a big producer of, of oranges or something, and you buy uh, my product for me. I agree over the next three years at some agreed-to fixed price to buy oranges from you over time. So it kind of it, it offsets the, uh, the initial cost of whatever it is I sold to you. Uh, offset. The difference there is uh, if I, if you as a country uh, agree to purchase my equipment and so on to set up a factory, let's say, let's say it's a food processing factory, in offset what happens is part of the deal is that all of the inputs that go into the food, let's say the sugar and the flour and all those other things will be sourced locally from that country. They won't, we won't be importing stuff from outside. So it, uh, it offsets the cost of the factory because the economy is going to get a big boost because all of the inputs going into the products coming out of that factory are being sourced from local suppliers. Okay. I, th- I, think, I think I got it now. Thank you. <laughs> um, and then uh, the final one, the, 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 uh, the rare one, the unicorn of, of counter trade. Um, yeah. of switch, switch trading. trading. Yes. <laughs> yeah, switch trading is 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 kind of the odd one. So a switch trading arrangement, um, it, it involves it's three different parties, and t- typically it's three different countries. Uh, so let's say country A needs to have a bridge built, and it's an emergency. I mean, they really need this bridge, but country A do- really doesn't have any hard currency at all. Um, maybe a, a poor economy, etc. But they have to have this bridge, and um, and a company in another country. Uh, is able to build that bridge for him. Well, what switch trading would be is if country A also didn't have any uh, desirable natural resources of some sort, they could go to a third country and acquire something from that third country that they could then use essentially as a barter to get the company to come build the bridge. So, you know, I'm in country A, I need your bridge. Um, I don't have anything, so I go over to country B over here, and I get a bunch of aluminum from them that I can then offer you to uh, as compensation to come build the bridge. So it's a little bit it's a little bit convoluted, um, and that was a very simple way of describing something that, as you can imagine, would probably become incredibly complex because there's three countries involved and all this stuff going on. Uh, but it, but it exists out there. That's why there's a term for it. Now I'm sure for for big ticket items for big companies and such that sort of thing, there are companies that will that either they specialize in that or they have divisions that specialize in counter trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, like for example, if GE takes payment for uh, some gas turbine engines from Argentina and gets paid in beef. <laughs> they're not going into the beef business. Yeah, right. So right. they're obviously going to be working with a third party to to deal with that. Is there for so obviously it's there for large companies. Is there something similar for small and medium sized companies? You know, um, I think the only in my experience for small and medium sized companies, it really uh, seems like barter occasionally will happen, but because of the size of the deals. Typically, these buyback, offset, counter purchase, certainly switch trading, um, 
are, are almost too complicated to, to get involved with because of the size of the deal. I'm sure it happens. But typically, when you're going to go through that kind of, a, of an arrangement and, and, and process, you're talking about really very big sales, Boeings, and, and like mm-hmm. you said, GEs, and building a dam type of thing uh, versus uh, smaller business-to-business transactions. Well, the, the, the Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Samuelson had kind of, a, he kind of threw some uh, cold water on the idea of barter. Uh, he he said, quote, uh, unless a hungry tailor happens to find an undraped farmer who has both food and a desire for a pair of pants, neither can make a trade. <laughs> and the, the economics terms, because this is, you know, an, an academic institution, we have to use big terms, is coincidence of wants or coincidence of needs. Mm. Um, and he's saying it's very difficult to coordinate uh, that that coincidence of needs. Do you, do you see it sometime in the future, maybe for in the small and medium sized business space, Potentially, somebody entering that business, um, providing you know facilitation for counter trade. Hmm, that's an interesting idea. Um, I, you know, I, I immediately came to mind export trading companies who tend to sort of trade in all sorts of different things. Whatever one country needs, they'll try to source and find. Um, so I imagine they they would be somewhat suited to perhaps act as that intermediary in the middle. Um, but when, with with barter in particular, I think sometimes uh, what you they're sort of proactive and reactive barter. Um, proactive would be a situation where uh, I want to sell something to some country, but they simply can't afford it, and I come up with something that I I know I can move um, for for whatever reason. Who knows what? I, maybe I have an uncle in the coffee business, and I know that Colombia's got coffee. They can't buy my stuff, but I could take their. Co- they'll give me coffee, and I can move the coffee. And so I'm proactive about offering that up front as part of the deal. The reactive side, I think, is really when it gets complicated, where the buyer says, "Look, we don't have any money, but we'll give you, you know, coconuts." And what am I going to do with coconuts? You know, that it, it doesn't. That's much right. more complex. Yeah. Right. I want your baseball glove. You want my Mike Schmidt rookie card. Yeah. And, and it's a straight one-up transaction. Whereas, yeah. you know, if for some reason you're not a Phillies fan, which <laughs> most people aren't. Uh, you don't want the Mike Schmidt rookie card. You, you might know. find someone else that you would then broker a, a, another trade with them as well. Yeah, and, and you can. This starts to get complicated. You know, all over a baseball glove. I'm just going to go to Walmart and pick one up. You know, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're talking about humongous deals, then it changes, um, and and it becomes uh, uh, worthwhile to go down this, these more complicated paths to secure the deal. Well, it, it is 10 to 15% of, of uh, the global economy. And uh, there was a time in the not-too-distant past where it was a much more commonly used uh, tool uh, when there was a part of the world uh, from which uh, repatriation of funds was essentially impossible. So uh, when we come back from the break, uh, we'll talk a little bit about that company and uh, what they did. Uh, and uh, probably one of the greatest counter-trade stories of all time. So uh, thank you very much, uh, George Tracy. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hello, this is Michael Oxman, Managing Director of the Ray C. Anderson Center for Sustainable Business at Scheller College of Business. We at the center are working to integrate environmental and social issues that present both risks and opportunities to the private sector into business school education and practice. We do this through academic research, courses and co-curricular activities that emphasize real-world engagement with corporate partners, 
and via collaboration on a range of international sustainability issues. For more information, you can find me at michael.oxman at sheller.gotech.edu. Thank you. Okay, we're back. So to understand one of the most amazing stories in the history of countertrade, we have to go back to 1959 when Richard Nixon met a hot and sweaty Nikita Khrushchev in Moscow. In a temporary thawing of the Cold War, the United States and Soviet Union had taken a break from testing nuclear weapons and were trying to outculture each other. By mutual agreement, both countries would host exhibitions in each other's largest cities to showcase the best that each had to offer. The Soviet Union went first, opening an exhibition in New York City in June. The exhibition focused around the Soviet industrial and agricultural advances, as well as music and performing arts. The cultural focus was Sputnik, and there was even a Tupolev Tu-114 on display at Idlewild Airport, which at the time was the world's largest and fastest airliner. The Soviets set a high bar. So in July, when the U.S. exhibition opened in Moscow, Washington was committed to making the best possible showing. The exhibition was set up to showcase all that American capitalism could provide. It included displays and consumer products from more than 450 U.S. companies. Among the firms present was the Pepsi-Cola Company, with their booth under the management of Donald Kendall. Kendall was committed to making sure Soviet leaders got a chance to drink Pepsi, preferably while they could be photographed. Fortunately for Kendall, it was hot that July day, and Nixon and Khrushchev were developing a thirst from talking about the advantages of their respective countries. The so-called kitchen debate focused not around weapons or territory, but instead the leaders thumping their chests about their respective contributions to science and culture and the quality of life in their country. When they reached the Pepsi booth, Kendall offered the group a choice. A Pepsi made with U.S. water and imported to the Soviet Union, or a Pepsi made with Moscow water. Khrushchev tasted first the local and then the import and supposedly said, Drink the Pepsi made in Moscow. It is much better than the American made. The Soviet Union didn't have much in the way of colas at the time, so the drink provided a respite in the heated kitchen debate. An iconic photo was snapped with the world leaders drinking Pepsi and a marketing campaign slogan of Quote, the sociables prefer Pepsi, was coined. Even though many Soviets said that the Pepsi smelled like shoe polish to them, Pepsi maintained a presence in the Soviet consciousness. Pepsi didn't immediately begin selling in the Soviet Union, but they never stopped trying to enter the Soviet market. So with regards to uh, doing business in the Soviet Union, uh, we do have an expert available to us. Uh, Would you care to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm, I'm John McIntyre. I've been a professor of international business at Georgia Tech for about 30 years and uh, did my original doctoral work focused on uh, Soviet trade and U.S.-Soviet trade relations, and in particular with emphasis on uh, U.S. Uh, export controls. Okay, thank you, John. Um, so if I were a company, say a, a soft drink company in the 1970s, in the United States, and I was trying to do business with the Soviet Union, what would be my major concerns there? Well, obviously, uh, if you're a soft drink company, unless you are selling the underlying technology 
and the formula to make soft drink. Very likely, if you're, finish, if you're selling finished end products, you would be facing the question of getting paid. The Soviet Union had a currency problem. Its currency was inconvertible. Its trade system was state-run. And uh, obtaining uh, hard reserve currencies, namely dollars, for items you had sold in the Soviet Union was difficult. So you would face the first and foremost problem would be, how do I get paid? How do I get paid in a currency that I can take to my bank and market? And so what was the response of a lot of companies in that situation? The history of trade for the USSR then was to really discourage trade to the extent possible and focus on autarky, self-sufficiency. If you cannot make in here, perhaps we should forego having it. That, of course, became untenable after World War II, and as you move into the era of globalization in the 80s and 90s, uh, it became uh, uh, impossible to think that the Soviet Union would deny its citizens the market goods generally available in the West. An interesting case of, uh, of barter, Soviet style, was the fact that the Russians, the Soviets, if you wish, loved uh, uh, all forms of modern Western music as much as anybody else. And they particularly liked the Swedish group ABBA. And uh, ABBA being very popular, there was a uh, market need for their records on the, on so on the, on the Soviet market. And uh, they finally had to find a solution because the, uh, the uh, Soviet foreign trade organization was not allowing payment in hard currency. They were saving that hard currency for some rare deals relating to technology. In any event, in the case of ABBA, the group was paid for its products, its records, its music, its copyrights, and so on, in the form of oil commodity rights that the Soviets made available to them uh, through their through their banks. By 1972, Richard Nixon was president and Donald Kendall was CEO of Pepsi. Khrushchev had died by then, but with Nixon's support, Kendall was able to broker a deal to manufacture and sell Pepsi in the Soviet Union. But there was a problem. Soviet rubles were worthless outside the Soviet Union. How would Pepsi get paid? The answer, in 1972, was to trade syrup for Stolichnaya. Pepsi would be produced at local Soviet plants and distributed throughout the country, and in return, Pepsi would have the exclusive rights to sell the premium vodka in the United States. The first Pepsi plant opened in Novorossiysk in 1974, and Pepsi became the first Western product produced in the Soviet Union. The trade of vodka for Pepsi went well for the company, and for a very long time, the Soviet Union was Pepsi's largest market outside of the United States. When we come back, taking the cola wars to the extreme. This is Robert Burgess, the Administrative Director of the Denning Technology and Management Program, abbreviated TNM. Our office is in the Scheller College of Business here at Georgia Tech. The TNM program is a competitive admission minor that's designed to breed cross-functional leaders in technology and business-related fields. The classes emphasize experiential learning and include hands-on elements that allow those TNM students the opportunity to offer interdisciplinary solutions to real-world problems faced by our corporate affiliates. All undergraduate majors on campus are welcome to apply each October for admission to the cohort the following fall semester. 
About 300 students apply each year. It's a very selective program as we only have 65 seats in each cohort. If you'd like more information about the TNM program, please contact me at robert.burgess, B-U-R-G-E-S-S, at scheller, S-C-H-E-L-L-E-R, dot Pepsi had made a lot of money in its syrup for vodka arrangement, but by 1988, that exclusive contract was coming to an end. Then-leader Gorbachev's policies of glasnost and perestroika were opening the country in previously unthinkable ways, and the demand for Western products was exploding. At the same time, demand for Russian vodka in the U.S. was flat. It's also possible that Pepsi was looking at the political turmoil in the Soviet Union and determined that rather than getting its payment in a trickle of vodka over several decades, it wanted to receive all the money up front. Pepsi also saw the Soviet Union as a potential location for expansion of its fast food franchises, specifically Pizza Hut. Pizza was comparatively unknown in the Soviet Union, and Pepsi thought it could score a big hit with the one-two punch of a long-term contract for more Pepsi and the entry of one of the company's most famous restaurant brands. Pepsi's request to be paid up front, however, put a bit of a bind on the Soviets. The deal Pepsi was proposing was worth $3 billion. They definitely did not have that much vodka available for export, so the Soviet officials looked around for other items they had on hand they could use to finance the deal. The Soviets eventually settled on surplus military equipment, not just tents, trucks, backpacks, and other items. No, they had a large fleet excess, so they offered 17 retired submarines, a cruiser, a destroyer, and a frigate to Pepsi, as well as a fleet of brand new oil tankers. In return, Pepsi would have permission to double the number of plants in the Soviet Union and to satisfy demand in this rapidly opening market. When Pepsi took the deal, it briefly became the sixth largest navy in the world on the basis of tonnage. Please note that all the ships were retired vessels before the deal was completed, and Pepsi was only going to hold on to them for a short period of time before selling them to a Swedish company for scrap. All the vessels were conventionally powered, so Pepsi did not have to worry about decommissioning nuclear reactors on their fleet. The oil tankers were going to be rented out through the services of a Norwegian company. Even so, the size and nature of the deal got a lot of attention. CEO Kendall told the U.S. National Security Advisor Brent Scowcroft, quote, We're disarming the Soviet Union faster than you are. It was the deal of the century, and Pepsi was feeling good. Unfortunately for Pepsi, in just a few months, everything fell apart. In November 1991, Soviet Union dissolved, breaking up into independent states. Pepsi's ships were now in the Ukraine, and the cheese supplier for their Pizza Hut deal was in Lithuania, which were suddenly independent states. Pepsi had also wanted to move from heavy glass bottles for its drink to plastic, but their plastic supplier was in Belarus. Pepsi's partner, the Soviet Union, had suddenly gone out of business, and Pepsi was forced to renegotiate with 15 successor states. Pepsi managed to piece together most of the deal over the following several months, and it launched a new marketing campaign which involved sending a giant Pepsi can up to the Mir space station, as well as giant billboards in Pushkin Square. However, for Pepsi, there was a much more potent threat on the horizon. Coca-Cola. Coke was novel in the former Soviet Union, while Pepsi had collaborated with the Soviet government and was almost seen as an arm of the old communist guard. 
Coke was able to bring its global marketing acumen in with a novelty that Pepsi didn't have, and within a few years, Coke was the number one cola in Russia. In 2013, the giant Pepsi billboards came down in Pushkin Square. Russia is still a major overseas market for Pepsi, but Coke dominates the market. In 2019, Pepsi might have sponsored the Super Bowl right in Coke's backyard of Atlanta, but the Pepsi exclusion zone around the stadium had one rather obvious exception. Within a short walk of Atlanta's new and exciting Mercedes-Benz Stadium stands another local icon, which was allowed to remain open and keep its logos proudly visible during the Super Bowl. The world of Coca-Cola, a 20-acre complex to all things Coke. And Atlanta is firmly landlocked, so none of Pepsi's weapons would have been able to reach it. So, now that we understand countertrade, what are the three takeaways? First, don't be afraid of doing business in places where getting payment out might seem difficult. There are many options available. Second, while countertrade is something that large firms do regularly, small and medium-sized firms can access it too, particularly for large transactions. Third, Countries can go out of business, just like companies sometimes do. But if you have a pre-existing counter-trade agreement, you can still salvage a good portion of the value of your contract, something that might not be possible if you have an agreement for currency exchange. Before we go, we wanted to let you know that we reached out to ABBA for a comment on their business dealings in the former Soviet Union. We did get a very brief reply from the group, which we play for you here. I don't want to talk about things we've gone through. Thanks for joining us, and please join us for our next episode when we will be talking about a technology that everyone seems to talk about, but most of us don't really understand, the technology known as blockchain. Please subscribe and look for that and future episodes wherever you find your podcasts. Mercado is a production of the Georgia Tech Center for International Business Education and Research, funded by the U.S. Department of Education and housed at the Scheller College of Business at the Georgia Institute of Technology in beautiful Midtown Atlanta, Georgia, USA. Georgia Tech Cyber Director, Dr. John McIntyre. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to encourage us to do more, please like and share this episode. The editor for this episode is Aaron Schaefer. Special thanks to expert speakers George Tracy and Dr. John McIntyre. The producer is James Hoadley. Special thanks to the Scheller College of Business, Joe Macri, and a big thank you to Charlie Bennett, public engagement librarian for the Georgia Tech Library. Please check out Charlie's podcasts, Lost in the Stacks, The North Avenue Lounge, and Super Context. The opinions expressed in this episode are the opinions of the speakers and do not represent an official statement of the Georgia Institute of Technology or the U.S. Department of Education. Information provided on Mondo Mercado is provided for educational purposes only and does not constitute professional advice. Always contact a qualified professional before undertaking any business investment. Special thanks to KCEL Productions. KCEL Productions.